Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is Brinkley section 16.5 and Brinkley section uh, 19.1 through 19.3. And these two sections basically um, sort of go with each other because Brinkley 16.5 is all about the rise and decline of the farmer, uh, really talking about how the farmer is declining, not really able to make as much uh, impact on politics or policy or economic um, kind of mass. And um, Brinkley section 19.1 through 3 is all about um, kind of the rise of uh, monopolies, industrialization, and urbanization. And so it sort of like it shows the shifting between um, an agricultural society like Jefferson wanted and a more industrialized society like the progressives uh, kind of model their parties off of. Um, so Brinkley section... Uh, 16.5 is all about the farmer, and there's really only two important things to know about uh, this section, and it's Joseph Gideon. Uh, he's a person, um, along with him and I.L. Eli Wood, um, who develop uh, the barbed wire, which replaces fencing in the West. Um, basically, fencing in the West requires a lot of wood and a lot of materials to build, whereas um, barbed wire is able to be made out of more simple materials, uh, more simple metals, um, which are far more common and far more uh, easy to get to the West because they're already in the West. Um, basically, barbed wire really replaces fencing in the West because um, the lack of transport to the West in the early um, decades of exploration to the West uh, really hinders the West's ability to rely on uh, resources that were plentiful in the eastern states. Um, and then there's kind of this idea of middlemen, farmers, we're kind of getting screwed over by everybody. They're getting screwed over by the expensive railroads, bad economies, um, and just really bad loans. Um, and just overall a bad, like, um, crop yield and bad, bad crop rates. Um, basically farmers would have to buy seeds, uh, at high prices, and then they would sell their crops at low prices because... Again, they were getting screwed over by these expensive rail railways, uh, which meant that they had to pay a lot of money to ship their foods. Um, and they had bad loans, which means uh, with high loan prices, you had to pay back so much money, which they, considering they only made um, one harvest a year, uh, it meant that their loans would get steadily worse and worse, and they'd have to take on more and more debt. And a bad economy just means that every time they needed every time they sold their food uh they'd be getting less and less money than how much they bought uh for seeds the earlier in the earlier parts of the year and so basically farmers overall are getting pretty screwed over um with bad um kind of investments in the west bad transport at the beginning of the years um and then again bad loans and bad a bad economy and getting screwed over by railroad monopolies so this leads uh to a lot of farmers seeking um to kind of give up their life and just move to the city as it's kind of the industrial point or the industrial centers of their states and holds a lot more political value than uh, their rural farms and so this party system uh, moving on to Brinkley 19, by the way. Uh, this party system kind of shifts the two parties uh, to be more equal. The Republicans and the Democrats are, at this point, uh, the only two major parties, and they will be the only two major parties uh, for the rest of history. Uh, for the rest of history up until this point, um, up until 2022. So could change. Probably won't change. Um, 
But anyway, they're the major two parties, and they're pretty equal. They're on pretty equal footing at this point. Uh, the popular vote for the presidency uh, comes within about one percent. I think it's like one point five percent for most elections at this time. Uh, the Senate is favored for Republicans, uh, for for a Republican majority, but the House is a Democrat majority, which means both houses of Congress have to work together to get anything through, which means um, extreme legislation isn't getting through Congress, and both co parties have to compromise uh, when they're in power uh, in the presidency. And the swings are accounted for mostly turnout. Um, basically, it's uh, which candidates can inspire most people to turn out. Um, and if you can get more people to turn out, then you're going to win. But you're not going to win by, uh, you know, massive margins. You're not going to win by 20%. You're going to win by 1%, 2%. Uh, which means that both parties are pretty much have to accept that they're going to have to compromise and that they're going to have to work together. Some of the things that uh, the parties are able to do uh, is that uh, is that they pass the Pendleton, Pen sorry, the Pendleton Act, uh, which requires that some federal jobs be filled uh, via written exams and not presidential appointments, basically ensures that people uh, who are qualified to be in the job are going to be picked for the job and not just given to whoever donates the most money to a presidential campaign or happens to be a good friend of the president. Basically, it means that qualified people are going to be serving in the federal government, um, and it kind of decreases the presidential power um, and executive uh, the executive branch branch's power, um, which we don't see a lot of anymore. Uh, most presidents are expanding the power of the presidency throughout history, um, but this this is one of the rare instances where the president actually loses a little bit of power. Um, and then we get to this idea of rum romanticism and rebellion, and basically it's a sort of phrase uh, coined by the Republicans uh, because Catholic ministers. Um, attacked the Democrats, and this kind of swung the 1884 election. Um, basically, the Democrats got criticized by a bunch of Catholic ministers in, uh, I believe, the New England states, and the Democrats were kind of slow to react, so the Republicans kind of took the agenda, ran with it, and uh, they were able to swing the 1884 election in their favor. And I believe, actually, I'm not going to take a guess with that one, uh, you know what, you can look it up if you care so much. I, I don't have it written down here who won the election. Uh, 1884, if you're interested. Um, it's just a quick Google search away. <laughs> um, then again, with uh, Congress passing more acts, we have the Sherman Antitrust Act, which we've talked about many times at this point. Um, but really the big point about the Sherman Antitrust Act, again, made to, um, kind of attack monopolies and um, monopolistic tendencies, but um, Brinkley points out how it was rarely enforced, and it was weakened by the courts, and um, the attorney generals, or the, yeah, the attorney general often used it to fight against unions just as much as uh, they did at monopolies, and so it was really used uh, more to attack unions than it was actual monopolies, which is uh, definitely an overstate, or an over... Uh, exaggeration of its abilities. Uh, it It's kind of seen as this idea of breaking up monopolies when, in fact, it actually hurt unions. It hurt the, the, little, guy, the little guy, not the big guy. Um, speaking of hurting the little guy and helping the big guy, we have the, we have Walbush versus Illinois. 
uh, which was a Supreme Court case which struck down an Illinois law. Uh, it says it said that the Illinois legislator, uh, the Illinois legislative leg, legislation, sorry, <laughs> the Illinois le legislation which uh, fought against monopolies, mainly the railroad companies, um, was unconstitutional, and that Illinois did not um, enforce commerce laws in its own state and and in other states. Um, so this again hurts uh, the little guy and helps the big uh, railroad monopolies. And so um, with this act, it kind of inspires a national debate about this, and we get the Interstate Commerce Act, which pretty much does what Illinois did, um, which is try and regulate the commerce of railroad companies. Um, but it was kind of difficult to enforce, and it was also very weak. But the idea of the bill was it banned discrimination between long and short hauls, so you can't you know, uh, charge different rates depending on if you're hauling a short or a long uh, distance. Uh, it required railroads to publish uh, their rate schedules, and it declared that rates had to be reasonable and just. Uh, that's a direct quote from the um, from the uh, act, uh, that they had to be reasonable and just, whatever that means. Congress is often vague, or vague in that sense. Um, so again, uh, generally good things. I think, <laughs> I think those are pretty good ways to try and uh, inflict some wounds to the railroad monopolies. Um, but again, it was ra rarely enforced and quite weak, so didn't really have the outcome it was intended to have. Um, eventually, we see the shifting tone of um, in the early 1900s all the way until the 1920s, and a lot of um, a lot of the little guys who were hurt down in the 1890s eventually um, are able to see some success and see some progress being made. So uh, there's three of them that I have uh, written down for Brinkley. Uh, there's the Grange. And the Grange is just a famous example of a farmer's union that was made to boost political and economic goals and fight against the railroad companies and warehouses. Basically, because the farmers were decreasing in power, uh, they unionized. Um, sort of made unions to cooperate and f push for big political and economic changes. Um, the biggest one being uh, the regulation of railroads and the regulation of warehouses, which often screwed over these farmers. Um, and then uh, I think more in the... Uh, the Grange was kind of a southern thing. More in the northern states, we have the Farmers' Alliance, which established stores, banks, um, and other basically... Uh, essential goods uh, to be uh, for free members, or, sorry, it established stores and banks and other essential uh, kind of areas uh, for to free members from the scammed rates and uh, of the rich and powerful. So basically it meant that uh, the Farmers Alliance was working together to create new banks, new stores, etc., um, to try and create a more farmer-friendly environment for farmers and to cry, kind of skirt around the um, unfair laws and unfair rules that the rich and powerful had put down on these farmers. And then finally, uh, this all kind of comes into a big political um, idea with the People's Party. It's the first, it's America's first and probably only populist party. 
Um, it won one million votes in nineteen or eighteen ninety two, and it was uh it and it won many local and federal races, and it was again America's first populist party. Um. And Brinkley doesn't really go into like what populism is, so I think just to summarize what populist populism means um it's basically the saying of popular things without really the intention of doing those things so um it's just kind of rhetoric it's mainly about like saying popular things but not really having the legislation or ability to actually do anything so someone might say we need to uh, cut taxes for the middle class um that's a popular thing. People like hearing that. People, the middle class, especially, which is a large voting block, likes to hear that. Um, but if you don't have any legislation, if you don't have any idea on how to actually lower uh, the tax rate for the middle class, you're just saying popular things without anything behind it. Um, and you hear this a lot from politicians even today, saying popular things without really understanding how it would work. Um, and basically how they could, you know, actually make change for the better and actually go through with their popular policies. And really, populist parties kind of run on this because, of course, if they don't have the power and if they don't have the ability and the know-how to actually change the system, they can constantly stay say forever and ever that they're going to do the popular thing eventually, um, that they need more votes, that they need more uh, party members, that they need X, Y, and Z. Um, and they can constantly run on this issue time and time again without actually ever having to do anything. And this ensures that they can forever again run and run on this issue. Um, speaking of running on issues, actually, <laughs> um, we have the Omaha platform, which was uh, kind of the call for all these populist movements. Um, the populist movement called for sub-treasuries and warehouses, the abolishment of the National Bank, and side note, I don't know why everybody hates the National Bank throughout U.S. history. Like, it's not even a big issue even, like, today. It's not, the National Bank is rarely talked about ever. Um, I don't know why everybody has a big issue with the National Bank. You know, the Jacksonians did, uh, the Democrats in the, uh, leading up to the Civil War did, and it appears that farmers also did so. I don't know what the big deal is with the National Bank, but everybody hates it, apparently. Um, <laughs> going back to the Omaha platform, it also ended since the land ownership. Uh, it called for the direct election of senators, which was the 17th Amendment, so that actually did pass. Uh, not thanks to the Populist Party, but thanks to the Democratic Party. Um, and it called for the regulation of railroads, telephones, and telegraphs, um, and basically breaking up those monopolies. Um, and so those are popular policies, but again, Populist Party, or the People's Party, can't really do anything about that. Not a very influential party um, in national politics, and so they can't really do anything, but eventually these ideas are adopted by one of the two parties, um, in the case of the populist, or the populists, um, their policies are adopted by the Democrats and eventually are able, most of them are able to pass through the, um, pass through Congress and become either amendments in the name, or in the 17th 
amendment, or they can become direct bills or acts um, it, through, that pass through Congress. Um, and then kind of another example of the little guy rising up is the uh, Cox, Coxie's Army. I believe that's what, uh, how to say his name, but basically Coxie's Army is a march for employment during an economic depression, uh, which is the Panic of 1893, by the way. So due, the, due to the economic collapse of the Panic of 1893, uh, Coxie's Army kind of rises up, um, and it's not a literal army. They're not, like, violently, like, attacking, but it is a march to Washington and kind of a plea uh, for Congress to do something, mainly to raise federal federal employment um, so more people can get a job during the Depression. Um, and then there is this idea of deflation, which is that basically deflating the value of silver, uh, or, sorry, it's this idea that silver was worth more than what it was to return to. So basically, silver was worth more than um, like a coin of silver was. And this meant that people uh, who owned a lot of silver had a lot of money um, just because they could keep the silver but not turn it into coins. And they could sell that silver around uh, and keep uh, kind of economic inflation or economic deflation um, continuing because with less money in the system, because less people are introducing the goods to make that money, there's going to be less money, which means money is worth more, which means your current assets are worth less, if that makes sense. So with that, the Populist Party is able to kind of attach itself to this idea of deflation um, and kind of call for the end of deflation because it's screwing over farmers, because um, if you're if you have to pay back um, let's say you have to pay back $20, um, and then by the time you are able to pay it back, those $20 are now actually worth $30, you're going to be pretty upset that uh, you're getting screwed over so much, especially since your pay isn't increasing, but uh, the amount of money in the world is decreasing. It's a very... <laughs> Economics is very difficult for me to understand, um, and it's, very, it's even more difficult for me to explain. Uh, I hope this makes sense. If you don't understand it, look it up. There's probably a thousand videos on deflation and inflation. Um, so moving past that, uh, there's William Bryan. This is the last buzzword, by the way. I know this episode's kind of long. Um, but William... William ugh, now I can't say his name. <laughs> William Bryan uh, supported the Silver Standard um, and basically became kind of a large political force through a popular speech he made, uh, which really riled up a sort of populist uh, crowd and really spread his name across America um, as a solidly like silver standard supporter um, and wanting to kind of not overthrow, but I don't really, I'm struggling to find a word here, not overthrow the rich, but definitely um, decrease the amount of power that the rich had um, by helping out farmers and by helping out the poorest Americans. So um, I believe that's all I wanted to say uh, for these two sections, and I hope, again, I hope my economic theories and explanations are okay. Um, I apologize if they were wordy, um, but I believe that's all I wanted to say, and I hope you learned something new, um, and I hope to see you in the next Brinkley. Um, goodbye. <laughs>